With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by The Athletic on this episode of the show. I'm here with Blake Murphy, our Toronto Raptors beat writer. I think I've been more impressed with the Raptors than any team in the bubble so far. Just their professionalism, their togetherness, the fact that they're healthy now, which is something that I think has gone kind of underrated nationally throughout the course of the season, that Toronto was as good as it was while dealing with the multitude of injuries that they've had throughout the season. So I want to talk about the Raptors. I want to talk about the rest of the Eastern Conference as a whole, the TJ Warren explosion, Milwaukee, Everything along those lines, Philadelphia trying to figure things out. And I thought Blake would be perfect because he's got his finger on the pulse of the East, but more than that, he's got his finger on the pulse of the Toronto Raptors. Blake, how you doing, man? It's good to get you on the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be back on. Um, I am mostly well. Uh, My air conditioning is broken, uh, so it's very, very warm. I'm like stuck to my chair right now. And I realize that there are some people out there who just don't have air conditioning, so they won't feel bad for me, but having air conditioning means I don't have things like fans around. It's a, uh, it's a sweaty one over here, Sam. Oh man, that's tough up in Toronto. I mean, I'm here in LA. It's uh, just lovely out. I went for a masked walk with my wife this morning and I'm so sorry that you're dealing with the heat up there in the way that you Oh, are. that's okay. It's uh it's 85 degrees here to put it in uh, American currency. It's so, so funny. I have to like, Almost all of the things on my phone are set to Celsius because my wife is from Melbourne in Australia. So her brain still works on Celsius. So like anytime it's really hot, it's like 30 degrees Celsius, right? Uh, It's always, uh, it's always interesting to have to make that conversion. I think I've gotten pretty good at making the conversion in my head too. Yeah. It's uh, the rough thing that we were taught in school was double it and add 32 and it's not exact but it gets you close enough. Yeah. So let's uh, let's just jump in and talk about this. You you don't want to talk about the temperature anymore. Do you want to, do you want to put it in Kelvin or anything like that? Well, we we can go Kelvin. We can start talking about like the temperature in shows whenever you go see pop punk bands because I know that yeah. you also have just a love of mid two thousands and late two thousands pop punk just like I do. An entire podcast about it. Please, please plug that podcast while we're at it. Yeah, that's called Columbia House Party. It's uh, me and a friend of mine named Jake bring guests on basically to just talk about their favorite pop punk or emo or indie rock albums from usually, it doesn't have to be from the mid-2000s, but it usually is. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, Uh, you're already in the spreadsheet, Sam, for an eventual Academy Is uh, episode. It's a good question. Who would I pick? Academy is would be up there. I still listen to a lot of Academy is, um, motion city soundtrack. I listen to a lot of them still. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I have like, I'm a, a I'm a big fan. Yeah. I have like an enormous list of like a playlist that I listen to. Um, taking back Sunday is up there for sure too. But yeah, I would say I saw, um, not too long before 
everything went to shit. I saw Taking Back Sunday, and they played uh, Tell All Your Friends front to back, and it was amazing. They're st- they can still, like, go? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, it's weird. Adam Lazara is, like, has gone full dad now, and, like, he has a beard, and, like, he posts, like, extremely dad Instagrams and stuff like that. Like, made an acoustic song about wearing your mask and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, they still put on a pretty good show. He still swings the mic around everywhere. Oh, yeah. That was that was always the best part. And, and like, the band has gone through so many changes that I feel like uh, I, would have, I would have hesitancy going to see them live, to be honest. But I'm glad to hear that they are still rocking and going well. Another team that's rocking and going well, other than <laughs> Taking Back Sunday, is the Toronto Raptors. The Raptors, like I said, have been just, uh, in my opinion, uh, basically exceptional throughout the course of this restart. And I guess that like we shouldn't be surprised that the Raptors have been unbelievable throughout this restart, only losing uh, a game against Boston uh, where everything just kind of went wrong. But they've beaten the Lakers. They've beaten uh, the Miami Heat. They've beaten Memphis. They've really taken care of business in a way that is impressive. Now they uh, have Milwaukee today at 3.30. I'm pretty sure Milwaukee is going to sit some guys as well. So we'll see how that game goes. And uh, I don't think it's really going to tell us anything about the potential matchup in the Eastern Conference Finals. But uh, I am intrigued to see where this Raptors team can go. And uh, I guess that I'll just start with this very basic question for you, Blake. Why do you think the Raptors have been able to navigate the Kawhi Leonard departure and all of these injuries and everything that has happened to them this year as well as they have? Yeah, it's a it's a tough question and one that I think, you know, a lot of other teams are going to be looking at. And I think what the Raptors would tell you is they would, you know, downplay the impact of leadership and things like that. But I do think that having such a strong, cohesive leadership group in the front office and and down to Nick Nurse throughout the coaching staff. You know, I I think everyone is expecting Nick Nurse to win uh, the actual Coach of the Year award. I know he didn't get the coaches one, but uh, an overwhelming Vegas favorite. And when we did that athletic straw poll, an overwhelming favorite there too. So that's part of it. Uh, I also think, you know, if you look at, yeah, they lost Kawhi Leonard and, and Danny Green. And obviously those are immense losses. Danny Green had one of the best three-point shooting seasons in Raptors history and was, you know, a borderline all-defense candidate in the regular season. Kawhi was finals MVP and is Kawhi. Uh, but the the top seven that they returned were, were all coming back. And they were all, you know, the, the team strongly believes that having gone through that championship run together, not only, you know, not only is it two months of extra development time in high-intensity situations for guys like Van Vliet and Siakam, um, but they they would tell you that the defensive continuity that that helps provide and the kind of chemistry on that end. And that's where, you know, entering the bubble, I thought that was the area where the Raptors would probably have an early leg up. And so far, they have the, the best defensive rating in the bubble games are the only team allowing uh, fewer than 100 points per 100 possessions. And, and that came back really quick. Obviously, the Boston game stands out as Uh, not their best performance but for the most part the defense has been there and I think you know the collective IQ that that group has developed especially the starters where you know it's crazy to think but I think Pascal Siakam had the worst individual defensive season of any Raptors starter and I've seen him on some all defense ballots Um, that's how deep they run defensively and I think all their success kind of started from there and it's not just um 
you know, it's not just the fact that they've locked down on defense, but they're the number two team at first at forcing turnovers. And they're one of the best transition offenses again this year. So um, that all kind of feeds together. I think it all starts on the defensive end and, you know, with the leadership from Masai Jiri down to Gasol, Lowry, Van Vliet. Um, I realize this is a very like soft science answer um, because, you know, you look and Siakam did take a huge jump in usage, but his efficiency came back down and Van Vliet was better, but, you know, his true shooting percentage still hovered around league average. And Kyle Lowry defied aging, but, you know, his numbers didn't take a huge spike. Gasol's usage was down even further. Um, so there's not one kind of, like, smoking gun tactically or developmentally that it's like, wow, this, this is what filled the Kawhi void. It has been this collective and getting a healthy OG Ananobi and their old guys, you know, fighting off the aging curve and the young guys continuing to develop. So... Uh, kind of a everything pulling in the same direction thing. Yeah, I'm glad that you started on defense, uh, even though that was as comprehensive, comprehensive as it possibly could have been. And I'm glad that you went about it that way as well. But the defensive side is what's so interesting to me with them because they are so versatile on defense. It's not just they play a specific way on defense and you're going to have to try and score on them. It's that they can provide so many different looks defensively to opposing teams that makes it very, very difficult to match up with them. They can play pretty big across the board with Marc Gasol and Pascal Siakam and OG Ananobi across the front court and then play like Norman Powell, who has a seven-foot wingspan at the two-guard of Kyle Lowry. Or they can play pretty small. They can play Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet in the backcourt with you know, one of Norman Powell or, you know, even Terrence Davis or something like that with, uh, you know, Rondé Hollis Jefferson and Pascal Siakam in the front court, which is a small way uh, to go about things. You have Serge Ibaka, who can play both the four and the five, mostly plays the five now, but uh, does have enough versatility to where if you need to go super big uh, against the team, for instance, like the Lakers, you can do that. It's the amount and the number of looks that they can provide opposing teams. They can go switch heavy. They can play drop coverage with Gasol. They have elite rim protection with Gasol because he's so good at uh, moving his feet and having incredible short area quickness. Uh, both of their guards really know how to fight over the top of screens. They can just do and match up in so many different ways that I think it's exceptionally difficult to find a matchup advantage, which is what so much of the NBA now is predicated upon uh, in terms of scoring on the offensive end. Yeah, it's it's makes them really tough, right? It's like you can't, I think the teams that have distinct offensive identities can't really go into a series like that. Like say there's a hypothetical Raptors Rockets series. Um, I don't know that the Rockets can go in comfortably and be like, okay, this is what the Raptors are going to defend and this is how we'll beat it. You know, Houston has hung some point totals on Toronto this year. And obviously that hyper aggressive doubling of James Harden, you know, didn't work out because the, you know, Ben McLemore drops eight threes or whatever. But that's an example where I think over the course of a series, Houston maybe has to rethink their approach or, or Toronto game to game changes things up. And I think, you know, Giannis, the, the quote from Giannis that he gave our colleague Eric Name of the Athletic Wisconsin last year after the playoffs, that, you know, he he had nightmares of these Kawhi Gasol traps. Well, the Raptors can do that to you all over the floor. And, and you know, OGN and OB has kind of taken the Kawhi role in that 
on a clutch possession, he's going to be the one driving the, at least if the, the point of attack person is a wing, he's going to be the one trying to drive them into those traps, whether it's Gasol or, you know, Van Vliet has become elite at sitting in the, the driving pocket where he's there to, to create, you know, he leads the league in deflections and has this great steal rate. Um, and then, you know, the Raptors close out and scramble so well that even if you pass well out of those situations, you know, they led the league in blocked three-point shots. Um, Siakam and Ananobi are kind of experts running out. Chris Boucher is not going to play meaningful minutes in a in a playoff series, but he is a crazy person scrambling out to corner shooters. And, and so, you know, they, they can do all of these things. And I think, you know, I don't think there are soft spots in the defense. If you If you even look at, you know, what does an eight-man rotation look like for them in a playoff series – you know, Terrence Davis is probably the weakest spot you can attack defensively. Um, Serge Ibaka is certainly not Serge Ibaka of old, but as far as a backup center goes who can offer a little rim protection and a little switchability, you're fine there. Um, you talked about Powell and that, Patrick McCaw's out, um, but he was the guy that they turned to to kind of stabilize bench defenses too. And then their, their extra kind of forward, if they need one, is Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, who you know, based on data from Krishna Narsu at, over at People Index, was the league's most versatile defender this year and who the Raptors used on Giannis for long stretches in regular season games. So I just, I don't think there's that spot, you, you know, short of Matt Thomas getting into the rotation um, because the, the half-court offense can't get it going. I don't know where the soft spot is that you attack in the Raptors' defense. I think, I think the strategy is probably to play a ton of shooting and the fact that the Raptors give up a historic rate of corner threes, you know, you hope for a variance to kind of to kind of fall your way. Uh, but yeah, there's not, you know, other than having a lot of shooting on the floor, I don't think there's a soft spot to attack, really. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, like we just talked about something like shit. There were like eight to ten good defenders there who are like legitimate plus defenders. McCaw, Ibaka, Norman Powell, OG Ananobi, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, Fred Van Vliet, Kyle Lowry, Chris Boucher, Pascal Siakam, Marc Gasol. That's 10 guys, and that's without even getting to Terrence Davis, who I don't even think is like a nightmare defensively. Uh, before we even get to, I think, an average defender, right? Like all of those guys are solidly above average, and it just becomes such a difficult matchup for opposing teams because they all do different things so well uh like i said like kyle lowry and fred van vliet you, know, you aren't really gonna be super successful you know having a heavy ball screen offense against them uh especially if you play small because you can just like you said kind of double on these ball handlers and force the ball out of their hands and then the raptors are so good at you know, scrambling and recovering around because they're so quick and so long in help defense and because they're so solid in their rotations, it's just going to be so, so difficult to match up with this group. I, I think that throughout the course of the year, uh, you know, let, let's say from like, you know, the beginning of the season in October until the suspension in March, I really underrated how good this team was. And then I went back and like really started to watch tape particularly after my conversation recording the Eastern Conference uh, bubble preview with, I want to say it was Pollinger. And I went back and watched like five or six of their games and I was just like, oh yeah, this is why they're really good. Everything that they do defensively is versatile. It's solid. It has different equities in terms of matching up with teams. It, 
they just run 10 deep defensively and they have guys who can create their own shot. It's just like a ridiculous, ridiculous group of players that is always going to be successful on that end. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, even if you even if you had worries, like I, I know at least for some Raptors fans or, or some detractors of the Raptors, you know, it's really easy to assume that because Kawhi Leonard's gone, that this is going to be the DeMar DeRozan, Kyle Lowry era Raptors where uh, some of the regular season success was artificial in that it was floated by this high offensive rating against bad teams. And they were kind of, you know, they were easy to game plan, easier to game plan for at the offensive end. Now, I, I would understand that you look at, you know, their middle of the pack in half court offense and how they're going to create um, difficult buckets against a set defense is a question but I think the fact that this team has such a high defensive gear um, means that you know we saw last year even with Kawhi Leonard like that team couldn't score at all against Philadelphia but their defense was good enough to kind of grind things out and it was their defense that tilted things against Milwaukee and I think you know if you're worried about the Raptors half-court offense which is completely reasonable again they're they're an average half-court offense and, and you have to go back to um, you know, like the the 04 Pistons to find a team that was ten, like not in the top 12 in half court offense that that made a deep, deep run. Um, so I understand that. And, you know, you can look for positives in like Pascal Siakam having sky high efficiency and usage in the clutch. And, and, you know, they don't go to the Siakam guard pick and roll very often, but it's been super effective. And you can you could talk yourself into the half court offense being better that way. But even if you don't, I think the defensive First of all, the defensive floor is substantial, but the defensive ceiling is maybe higher than anyone other than Milwaukee in the league. And even then, you know, you could you could nitpick it and argue that Toronto, when they shrink the rotation, could be just as good on that end. Um, you know, I don't think I'd make that argument, but that's that's what's going to keep them in a lot of series. And, you know, obviously the first round is going to be. Uh, not a particularly challenging one, but whoever they get in the second round, whether that's Boston, Miami, Indiana, Philadelphia, um, you know, I think they'll be comfortable with how they match up against any of those teams defensively. And I think if they get to the conference finals, they're, you know, they're certainly not going to be favorites against Milwaukee, but they're going to be confident internally that their defensive system can handle a series like that. Yeah, I think I actually disagree with you. I think I would make the case that, I trust Toronto's defense more in a playoff series than Milwaukee's to get to the highest gear consistently. And again, it, it just has to do with that matchup versatility. Yeah. It will, will Budenholzer come off of the base set if it's not working, I guess is the big question, right? Right. And if he does have to come off of the base set, how does, for instance, playing Giannis at the five look for them defensively on a consistent basis in the playoffs, right? right. Because they do it. You know, not not irregularly necessarily, but it's not their base defense. Their base defense, they want to play drop coverage with Brooke Lopez and feed everything into the paint. And then they're going to allow three-pointers and try and contest three-point jumpers. So I'm not saying... And I think, yeah, ahead. like I, I'm with you because I do think that if Milwaukee's having trouble scoring in a series like that, like I know they've gotten so much mileage out of Brooke Lopez as this three-point bombing center, Splash Mountain and all that stuff. But if you look at personnel and you look at what the Raptors' defensive system does and offers you, like Giannis surrounded by four shooters is the way, is the is going to be the best way to score on Toronto. So the question of could they defend like that, you know, can you defend 
capably if Corver's on your half court defense or or you know the the Raptors will let Eric Bledsoe take 10 threes a game after last year. Um but like can you patch together an elite shooting lineup around Giannis that can also defend is a is a huge question. No, I, I not not huge. I mean they have the personnel that I think they'd be at least solid defensively, but solid you know, when you get as far as the, the Eastern Conference Finals, solid maybe doesn't uh, doesn't do enough if you're struggling to score, too. No, I totally agree that it remains an open question uh, at the highest level about how Milwaukee's defense uh, and offense with Eric Bledsoe on the court will translate. Because uh, if you have to take Bledsoe off of the court, that is a substantial downgrade defensively for Milwaukee in a way that... Toronto doesn't necessarily experience whenever it goes to the deeper parts of its rotation. So that's kind of why, like I would trust the defense. Now I obviously do trust Milwaukee's offense a little bit more than I trust the Raptors offense. Yeah. uh, That, that is kind of my biggest question here going forward about the Raptors. Now, part of my faith in them. um, And I would still pick the bucks to come out of the East. I I will say that. And we'll talk about the bucks here uh, in a minute, but Part of my faith in the Raptors is that I trust Nick Nurse to get the most out of an offense that has incredible amounts of basketball intelligence and ball movement. I mean, you can make a case that like Kyle Lowry, Fred Van Vliet, and Mark Gasol are three of you know the 20 smartest basketball players in the NBA in terms of feel for the game, right? But at the end of the day, it really does come down oftentimes to self-shot creation in the NBA playoffs. And a lot of that is going to come down on Pascal Siakam's shoulders. And it's going to be interesting to see how he deals with being that number one option. I'm not saying he can't do it. I just think it's a very real open question. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, I think the Raptors want to get him the reps in that situation anyway. And if they have to live with some ups and downs from him. Not that, you know, it's it's not like, like Kyle Lowry has been very good this year, but I don't think you're going to put like the ball back in his hands as a number one scorer type too regularly. Like they're going to give Siakam plenty of leash to figure it out. But yeah, they are the number 16 ranked half court offense. And, um, you know, we know historically, like last year, the, the Raptors were one of the best transition offenses and pretty much every team except Milwaukee had fewer transition opportunities in the playoffs as a percentage of like total total plays. And, and this year, the Raptors, again, no team gets uh, ends more possessions via transition than the Raptors, owing to um, that high turnover rate and how well they push the ball. Um, if that slows down and then that half-court offense, you know, they neutralize the, the half-court struggles some by getting out in transition so well. Um, but if the transition opportunities come down because teams are a little more dialed in defensively or um, teams aren't going for offensive rebounds as often, uh, it becomes an even bigger issue. And I do think there are encouraging signs. You know, Pascal Siakam qualitatively has been a little up and down and his decision making has not been the sharpest in these bubble games. He's flashed a little bit more uh, mid-range, which is helpful. He's very comfortable pulling up off the three, which obviously in terms of pick and roll and how teams are going to defend him is a positive. Uh, he does have the highest offensive rating on the Raptors too, uh, which is, and, and then, you know, I mentioned the clutch stats where in the clutch, he spikes to over a 30% usage rate and over a 60% true shooting mark, which are pretty elite marks in, in those 
that kind of a scenario. Um, the Raptors also have some other indicators, you know, like like they have a top 10 out of timeout defense uh, or offense rather. So, you know, there's some evidence that maybe not evidence, but but some suggestion that maybe Nick Nurse, you know, lets them improvise in the half court um, often enough that it depresses the number like like what i'm trying to say is if nick nurse puts his hands on the controls a little bit more or even if kyle lowry puts his hands on the controls a little bit more um maybe things are just a little more coordinated and they tick upward but yeah this is the big question and it's a big question that starts as soon as round two um whether they get boston miami philadelphia indiana you know all of those teams offer some real defensive challenges all of those teams have interesting guys they can put on Siakam one-on-one or things they can try to do with them in the pick and roll you know Bam's going to be a really tough matchup if he draws that um Siakam has struggled with um you know centers on him to say they get Philadelphia and Embiid's healthy you know that was something he took some time to adjust to last year obviously the pull-up three in the mid-range game uh is helpful to counter that kind of stuff but there are going to be these questions uh, no matter who they draw. And it's, uh, you know, he's had trouble with Jalen Brown, too. He had one really good game uh, against the Celtics earlier in the year, but he really got frustrated by Jalen Brown the other night. So um, there are questions for Siakam all over. And I think I think what you're going to see in the first round is they're going to give him a ton of responsibility uh, against the Nets. And the Nets obviously don't have uh, a Bam or a Jalen Brown defensively, uh, but they're going to let Siakam kind of learn and take those lumps. And that's kind of been the edict all year is our defense is their defense is good enough to win them a lot of games and they can live with some ups and downs on offense to, to develop Siakam and develop Ananobi and Van Vliet. So I think that'll be their mentality through the end of the first round. And then, yeah, the, the questions really kick in because you can't have, I don't think, as much patience with those ups and downs uh, once you get a Boston or Miami or whoever. Yeah, and the interesting part of Toronto and particularly Siakam's transition to being that number one scorer in the playoffs is that Toronto is going to create a lot of opportunities to where he is essentially going to be one-on-one with another defender. And in large part, that's because Toronto is very unlikely, uh, other than when Rondé Hollis-Jefferson is on the court, to have someone who's just a total non-shooter on the court. Right. Right. You basically have to stay attached to all of their shooters. Marcus All hit 40% from three this year. Terrence Davis is 39%. OG Ananobi is 39% three-point shooter. Van Vliet's 39. Uh, Norman Powell's 38. Serge Ibaka's 38. Uh, yeah, Lowry's their worst rotation shooter at 35%, and he has this enormous track record of being a great shooter, especially when he's working off the ball. So Right. You so, know, so it's, like, uh, no one's going to even even up. Hollis Jefferson. So sorry to interrupt you. Like even Hollis Jefferson, you know, first, he's not going to play a lot of minutes in a playoff series anyway, I don't think. But they basically they kind of invert the offense. like he's the center in the offense then. And he sets a lot of screens and he hangs out in the dunker uh, and crashes like he's the only guy other than maybe Chris Boucher who has the green light to crash the offensive glass and stuff, too. So even him like. You don't have to guard him outside, but he is a pretty savvy like cutter and offensive rebounder. So you at least have to be aware. But I don't think he's gonna, you know, I don't think he's gonna play a ton in a playoff series anyway, really. But well, other than the, than the Milwaukee series potentially, because I do think yeah. that they will use him quite a bit against a Milwaukee team that has Giannis. Yeah, like I think OG is gonna get the first crack at that, and I think. Yep. You know, I'm already annoyed tonight that for a game that hasn't happened yet that they're not going to have OG guard Giannis if Giannis plays. Um, they just, like, haven't... I, I don't... 
I think it's a little overstated sometimes how much we think coaches like hold stuff back or whatever, but they have just like not been putting Ananobi on the other team's best player as much as you would expect. Um, and I think part of that is, is for that reason. So yeah, I think, I think you'll see a lot of Hollis Jefferson uh, tonight in that game. And then, yeah, he's, you know, he's certainly got a leg up on, on Boucher and maybe even Davis as the extra guy. They'd probably like to go bigger against Milwaukee anyway. Yeah. And the other thing about what this does too, is it's going to create driving lanes for someone like Kyle Lowry. Like back in those days where Kyle Lowry did not necessarily have the best playoff reputation. I think in large part, it was because teams would really crowd him and look like Kyle didn't make pull-up jumpers uh, in a few different playoff series. Right. And didn't necessarily live up to the moment in a way that uh, was disappointing. I'm sure for Kyle above all, right? Like that dude is one of the most competitive players in the entire NBA. Right. But what having that kind of spacing does is it just opens the floor for everyone in a way to where I don't, I don't want to say that they don't need the self-creation. They certainly do need the self-creation, but having elite level spacing mixed with basically every minute that teams are on the floor, they're going up against at least two out of three exceptionally high level basketball IQ guys who always make the right pass in a Gasol, a Lowry, a Van Vliet you just always have to be on your toes. You always have to be there uh, and you always have to be scrambling in the right spot because I think that's what Toronto does really, really well. They take advantage of when teams are just slightly off in their rotation and those moments where teams are slightly off in their rotation happen less often in the playoffs because you're obviously going against better teams once you hit the highest levels. But man, they make you pay more than most other teams make you pay. And I think that that is, uh, that's why I'm, I don't want to say I'm bullish on Toronto's offense, but whenever you pair it with the defense, I think this is going to be a really, really tough out. And I think that they are, I don't want to say 50-50 with Milwaukee to make the finals for me, but it's a lot closer than what I thought uh, going into, you know, a week before the bubble. Yeah, and it's, you know, some of that's going to come down to, what the the three through six ends up being and who gets through where, you know, I don't think say Indiana gets through. I, I don't think in, Indiana's a tough team and they've been a ton of fun, but I don't think that's that hard a series for Milwaukee. Whereas, you know, a Miami might wear them down a little bit more. And then if you're the Raptors, I think Boston is maybe the worst matchup for you out of those options. Um, so uh, yeah, and to your point about the extra space with Lowry, like Lowry, Lowry is scoring almost double the points per game off of drives that he was last year, where he was just like, you know, he was such a secondary player around Leonard and, and Siakam. Um, so there's something there. I do want to push back just a little bit that while Lowry shot the ball poorly in those playoff years, he's still, this is this is like, if a Raptors fan listens to this and I don't say this, I'll get in trouble. <laughs> Lowry, Lowry still drove like team level success and the on-offs yeah. were still dramatic and stuff so i just i always have to say it but yeah lowry's been much better off the drive this year and and van bleed i think even you know he has he's a bottom 10 finisher in the league at the rim but he's added a little bit to his floater package he passes well out of the drive he's got he's developed a little bit of that like nash pick and roll game where he'll curl out the other side to create an advantage so um you know the spacing allows you to do all that and that's you know, Nick Nurse was saying after the Memphis game on Sunday that, like, and it's the second or third time it's come up in the relaunch, he's pretty frustrated, it seems, at the lack of off-ball movement, specifically when Gasol has the ball. We really haven't seen a ton yet of Gasol, um, you know, operating as a passer at the elbows or out of the post, and, and that's another thing they can they can add a little bit of, too. 
um, to try to, you know, nudge this half-court offense a little higher than average where it'll need to be. Oh, man. I love that you just did that with Kyle Lowry. I, I, yeah. love, the, I love that uh, Raptors fans are as, uh, as passionate as they are. About yeah. I, ha- I have to Lowry. I have to get it out there. He shot poorly, but didn't play poorly necessarily. With the exception of one, there was I think the Washington series when they got swept, he did not play well. No, but. I generally agree with you uh, on that. I think that yeah. if you would ask Kyle, he would be disappointed in his performance, even though he was a useful player. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's you know as a media member, it's always tough because the worse Lowry plays, the better a quote he is. <laughs> When, when things are going well, he doesn't want to talk to us at all and just doesn't give us much. And then when he plays poorly, he's a quote machine. So, uh, unfortunately, we haven't got many good Kyle Lowry quotes the last couple of years because he's, uh, he's figured out the playoff stuff, other than game one against Orlando last year and game one against Brooklyn this year, probably. All right, we'll be right back here in one second with Blake Murphy talking about the rest of the Eastern Conference. I just have uh, a quick advertisement here. Just take a second to listen from our sponsor. All right, and we're back. We're going to talk uh, a little bit about the Raptors competition in the Eastern Conference here. Uh, The Milwaukee Bucks have been everyone's favorite uh, overreaction toy so far Uh, in the playoffs. It's them and the Lakers. Everyone's freaking out. Oh, are the Lakers uh, as good as we thought they were? Oh, the Bucks are a fraud. Like everyone uh, in the like bullshit generalist media is coming up with these bad takes. So far, what are your thought on what? What are your thoughts on what we've seen from Milwaukee so far in the bubble? Yeah, I mean it's it's a little tough because if they were any other team, I would think this is just like they came into the bubble with nothing to play for other than to get in the rhythm and get ready for the playoffs. Um, because it's Budenholzer and he hasn't generally done that a ton in the past, other than managing Giannis's minutes, um, you know maybe there's less room for that. But I'm not really worried. Like. Like, yeah, they're two and three. They only have a slightly positive net rating. They still, like, as a team, have a true shooting percentage over 60% for the bubble games. Like, I'm not I'm not falling into the trap of, of doubting Milwaukee because they had a bad five-game stretch when none of these games matter. And, like, even if they come out Monday and get pasted by the Raptors or whatever, I don't think they're concerned that much. And I think process side, um, there's nothing, like, there's nothing too, too alarming other than do they have enough three-point shooting um, with how much teams are going to help off their shooters to uh, take the ball away from away from Giannis or keep Giannis away from the paint. I think, you know, that's the, that's the one thing that Milwaukee's strategy at both ends of the floor has always kind of hinged on is like, you know, they're making this huge bet that four times out of seven, uh, they're going to execute that better than the opponent. And for the most part, they, they do, but they're still you know, we saw what happened in the Eastern Conference Finals last year, and uh, there's some element of shooting variance there, and I, I think they probably aren't as comfortable with uh, the level of shooting they have as they would like to be. You know, like like DiVincenzo settling in at, at 33, 34% instead of being a mid-to-high 30s guy, Brooke Lopez regressing, Bledsoe being Bledsoe. Um, you know, I, I, cert- I don't think you're going to play Ilya Sova much in a playoff series uh, because, you know, you, you almost can't. Uh, at least from what we saw last year. So I, I do think that's probably the thing that they would be concerned about and the thing that I would be not concerned about, but the thing that's going, as the competition gets higher, like when you look at the Eastern Conference Finals and, and beyond, you know, that that's the thing that I'm a little bit worried about Milwaukee, that, that shifts them from maybe 
title favorite to in a group of three or four title favorites. Um, but yeah, I'm not I'm not overreacting to this this five game blip of them being a little you know unfocused. So yeah, I think that part of the Milwaukee meltdown is they lost to Brooklyn and everyone seems to want to freak out when teams lose to Brooklyn, right? Like Giannis and Chris Middleton didn't play in the second half of that game. So I don't know why there would be this little meltdown, but nonetheless, people want to have them, whatever, do your thing. Uh, The thing that does slightly worry me just a little bit, just a very, very small amount is that, Milwaukee did have one of the easiest schedules in the NBA this year. I believe that they are 27th in terms of strength of schedule uh, across the NBA, according to basketball reference, which is not ideal. And look like Toronto is 26th in strength of schedule, like teams in the Eastern conference play a weaker schedule It is what it is. But, and especially when teams in the Eastern conference are good, they don't get to play themselves which artificially deflates their strength of schedule, right? So I I get that that's not necessarily something they can control, but like it does create like a very small doubt in my mind how much of this like incredible success has been built on the back of playing semi-easier teams. I mean, this is a... This is a group that lost to Miami before the restart, lost to the Lakers before the restart, lost to Denver, uh, you know, before the restart, lost to Denver again before the restart. Uh, They have had a tendency to lose games to good teams here and there. Now, I think so much of what is going to happen with the Bucs, and I almost don't even want to belabor this point because it's so obvious, is just... How much do they get out of Eric Bledsoe as a secondary scorer? And how much do they get out of Mike Budenholzer being willing to make adjustments? Because Nick Nurse is going to outcoach <laughs> Mike Budenholzer. Um, I just feel confident saying that. Like Nick Nurse is a better basketball coach in game than Mike Budenholzer is. Mike Budenholzer brings a lot to the table. He's an exceptional basketball coach. His system and his strategy and uh, their ability to get out and transition and space the floor and uh, create space for Giannis is incredible. But throughout the course of Budenholzer's career, we haven't necessarily seen him be willing to make the occasional adjustments from time to time that he needs to make. What happens when Toronto, what happens when Miami starts to take away some of what Giannis can do because both Toronto and Miami have very specific players that they can put on Giannis that can make him, let's say, 90% of the unbelievable player that he is versus 100% of the unbelievable player that he is. I will be very interested is all I'm saying. Like, I, I'm not I'm not real worried based off of what we've seen from Milwaukee so far in the bubble. I think that that game against Dallas is, I don't, I don't want to say it's a blip. It was just an absolutely exceptional game. And uh, Dallas is a team that because they have so much individual talent with Luka Doncic, Kristaps Porzingis, plus one of the best offenses in NBA history. If they get hot, they can beat anybody at any given time uh, in any given game. Uh, the Houston game, like I'm not real worried. That was a four point loss. Like they played well in that game and Houston just beat them at the end of the day. I just worry that their margin is maybe a little bit smaller than what we thought going into the bubble. 
Yeah, and, and you know that's a, owing as much to I think Toronto and Boston and Miami looking as and even Indiana a little bit. You know I don't think Indiana is necessarily a threat to come out of the East, but you know when you're talking about path difficulty and um, you know what kind of state you reach the conference finals in, I, I think all of that stuff matters. And, and Boston, Toronto, uh, Miami all looking like they would be at least tough series for them. Um, you know, yeah, I think they went from overwhelming favorite to come out of the East earlier in the year to just a regular favorite. Um, to your point about you know, can Budenholzer adjust and did Milwaukee fatten up on a, on a lighter schedule? Like I, I just looked up the cleaning the glass uh, ranks where you can sort by uh, opponent quality. So Milwaukee had the number one net rating against the middle 10 and the bottom 10 in the NBA. And they were still second against the top 10 teams in the NBA, uh, but their offense fell to seventh in those cases. And that's not, you know, seventh isn't like alarming or anything, but when you factor in that from the second round on, they're going to be playing at least a, a pretty good defense up to an elite defense if they get, you know, Toronto or the Clippers or something like that. Um, yeah, it's it's cause for concern. And I think the East, I think last year's Eastern Conference Finals should be kind of fresh in people's memory or, or refresh it in your memory where the Bucks were up 2-0, almost 3-0. So obviously the margin for that series was very, very narrow. Um, but we saw the Raptors try a bunch of stuff to get themselves out of the hole and keep trying new things even as they they tilted the series back their way. And Milwaukee never really changed anything. And it's something that I know, again, our colleague Eric Name at, at the Athletic Wisconsin has asked Budenholzer a bunch this year. Um, and they've they've toyed with some, some different stuff in small samples. Uh, but it still very much looks like the same Milwaukee team. Um, so, you know, if I were... Mike Budenholzer and that inflexibility had cost me last year. I feel like I would have spent this year experimenting a lot more rather than just, you know, like finding more players that fit the system uh, like a Di Vincenzo and kind of developing those kind of guys. So I, yeah, I think, I think the Budenholzer question as the difficulty ratchets up is a, uh, is a good one. And Miami's another team too, where like I'm confident saying Spolstra will be the better coach in that series. So um, yeah, if I'm a if I'm a Bucks fan, that's probably the thing that I'm I'm looking at most as series get more difficult is is Milwaukee just you know kind of banging their heads with the same stuff or are they willing to to get outside the comfort zone a little bit? Yeah, and look when Giannis has played when Brooke Lopez or Robin Lopez are not on the court, you know they've played 460 minutes like that this year. Like it's not yeah. an insignificant amount of minutes. Uh, you know they have a 13 net rating in those minutes. So they've been uh, slightly better uh, in those minutes and they've maintained their incredible defensive rating in those minutes as well. It's just that it's going to get tricky. And then you also have to, at some point get Giannis a breather. And in those minutes, Chris Middleton has to take over and you have to be able to trust him to lead the offense for those. Let's even just say it's eight to 10 minutes a game. And a team like Toronto and a team like Miami, who also has pretty good depth, is going to have a chance to really hit Milwaukee in those minutes, I think. And that, that's where I would be a little bit concerned if I was Milwaukee. What do you do in the minutes without Giannis? And what do you do uh, in the minutes where you have to shift Giannis to center because you have to get some sort of offense and uh, you have to get some sort of offense going and potentially a team has played Brooke Lopez off the court defensively. Now, uh, in Toronto's case, particularly, I don't know that they're going to be able to play Brooke off the court necessarily. Uh, I think that Milwaukee will probably be pretty happy to live with 
Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet taking pull-up three-point jumpers and say that this is a way for us. Not It's not an outcome that we want, but it's the outcome that we're willing to live with more than taking Brooke Lopez off the court on, uh, on defense. Now, can Toronto do that and maintain? I don't know. I think it's going to be a really interesting matchup to find out because you can get beaten over the course of a seven-game series by doing that. It's just whether or not Kyle and Fred make shots. Yeah, and, you know, obviously, famously, the the conference finals kind of tilted when Van Vliet started making shots. Um, But, yeah, so I I think, you know, I'm obviously, for uh, self-interest purposes, I'm hopeful we get that series because it means the Raptors have gone longer and, and I get to do my job longer um, and things like that. But also, I'm really interested to see what that rematch looks like from a Budenholzer nurse perspective and from a, you know, can they do the same job on Giannis with Ananobi instead of Leonard and things like that. So, you know, obviously Milwaukee against anyone good is going to be interesting for those reasons. And they'd be very interesting against the LA teams in the finals. But uh, yeah, I kind of want that rematch and see, you know, I think we learn more about Milwaukee if they get that rematch than, than we do in maybe any other Eastern Conference final scenario. Yeah, I think that I'm most interested in the Toronto-Milwaukee rematch just because I want to see Nick Nurse uh, just kind of adjust on the fly to what Milwaukee does. Like, Milwaukee is a battering ram with its system. Toronto is a versatile group of players that kind of is amorphous around what you can do and can find success uh, around what the other team does. Figuring out how that matchup goes is going to be really fascinating for me. The team that could blow all of this, by the way, is Boston. Yeah, I don't think it's certain at all that Toronto is going to be the team in the Eastern Conference Finals uh, against Milwaukee. I I do think, you know, I'd probably pick them to get there, but that Boston series is going to be a difficult one for them. And not only um, because Boston's very good, but because there are some matchup issues there for Toronto. And, um, you know, the the season series between those two teams is extremely noisy. Uh, Marcus Gasol, Pascal Siakam, Norman Powell, all missed a pair of games. Um, Brondae Hollis Jefferson missed one. I think Marcus Smart missed one. And Kemba Walker had a minutes limit for, for another. And then three of them were blowouts, two in favor of Boston and one in favor of Toronto. So you have, you know, not very good data on that series. But Boston introduces some matchup problems for Toronto. And, and they have the kind of, you know, the volume of shooting and wings that could maybe uh, counter Toronto's defensive versatility and way they like to handle lead ball handlers. Um, you know, I think at this stage, not to reduce a series to who has the best player, but Tatum is maybe a little ahead of Siakam, not only as um, a guy that you're comfortable funneling a ton of important possessions to, but also in terms of using that defensive attention he gets a, a little better um, to make things easier for the guys around him. And, and you know, Tatum, I, I think Siakam has a higher defensive upside, but he's been less consistent on that end this year. So, um you know, I, I think that that's a tough matchup for Toronto. I think it would be a tough matchup for Milwaukee as well. Uh, I'm really excited we're finally going to get Toronto-Boston, maybe, uh, who, assuming whoever the sixth seed is doesn't, doesn't blow that up. Um, but yeah, man, the East is looking the East is looking like a ton of fun other than the 1-8 and 2-7 matchups. Yeah, with Boston, you're 100% right. This is going to be a really, really fun Eastern Conference semifinals and finals once we get there. With Boston... It's interesting because, like you said, they can kind of do a lot of what Toronto does just arguably with more star power, right? Like Jason Tatum can create his own shot. Jalen Brown can sort of kind of create his own shot now in a real way that is going to 
potentially be a tough matchup in a playoff setting. Gordon Hayward can create his own shot. Kemba Walker can create his own shot. Uh, you know, Marcus Smart provides a lot of defensive versatility. Where I think Boston falls short in comparison to Toronto is in the depth department. They're basically yeah. going to have to use six guys against Toronto or else they're in trouble, I think. Like Brad Wanamaker had a great game uh, against the Raptors in the bubble. I think he had like 15 points or something like that and shot incredibly well. But they can't count on Brad Wanamaker to do that regularly. And frankly, I don't think they can really count on anybody uh, in their rotation to do this regularly, uh, unless Robert Williams in the flashes that he's shown ha- are real. And I'm not really convinced that they are, to be honest, uh, just given what his role has been throughout the entire year. I would imagine that, and I know that he dealt with some injury stuff, you know, throughout the middle of the year, but uh, just given that Brad Stevens doesn't seem to have like a crazy amount of faith in playing him at the moment. Uh, I think it's reasonable to question whether or not they're going to play him a ton in the playoffs as well. So I'm not saying that I'm not saying that Toronto is uh, better than Boston necessarily. I think I trust them a little bit more, but it's a fascinating matchup just because Boston has the kind of defensive scheme breakers that, you need to win in the playoffs. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, like Williams is an interesting one, Robert Williams rather, um, because, you know, he does offer some stuff that could be difficult for Toronto. Like the fact that he's a vertical lob threat um, is, you know, important if you look at how Toronto spaces the floor defensively in pick and roll scenarios. Um, and the fact that he offers some rim protection. I know I know Boston's rim protection and rim deterrence has held up fairly well with, with um, Tyson and his cancer, uh, but Robert Williams adds a, an extra dimension there too. So if they do go deeper, you know, I, I don't think, obviously Williams is a guy the Raptors are going to test and see if they could play him off the floor and cut into Brad Stevens' faith with them. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I think... I think Boston has um, Lewis Zatzman for, from Raptors Republic tweeted out the other day that Boston has three guys who are in the 80th percentile or higher isolating. And I think that's kind of the approach against Toronto is to, to go one-on-one with shooters around. So yeah, that's a, that's going to be a fun one. It's going to be a stressful one. I'm really interested to see how Boston deals with Kemba Walker. Cause I don't think Kemba is a hundred percent healthy. A and Boston has been pretty clear about that as well, that the knee is still bothering him, at least in some regard. Uh, And then how they deal with him defensively, particularly, is going to be interesting because he is a real potential matchup problem for Boston on defense and a uh, real potential matchup to be exploited on offense for an opposing team. So how they deal with the Kemba Walker of this whole thing is just something that I'm not really sure how they're going to. It's not that Kemba isn't a willing and uh, tough defender. Uh, I think that he certainly will be in the playoffs as well. Uh, He is a guy that really fights and scraps and claws. But uh, at the end of the day, if you get Pascal Siakam on him uh, in a switch, or even if you get, you know, frankly, Norman Powell on him in a switch, like it's a problem for Boston in those settings. Yeah, and that's, you know, teams are obviously going to hunt that out, and the Raptors can run. They haven't done it a ton this year, but like a Siakam guard pick and roll has been pretty, pretty effective for them, especially late in games. And, 
you know, that's something they used to spam with DeRozan and Lowry, and they went to a little bit with Kawhi and Lowry, and they've done it now with Siakam Lowry and Siakam Van Vliet. So wherever, even they've even used, like, with the intention of being able to attack the weakest defender. Like, I think if you're Boston, you maybe try to hide Kemba on OG, um, because OG is stationed in the corner so often. But even then, they've tried to use OG as a handler and a screener in pick and roll just to get him those reps in case, you know, last year they ran into J.J. Redick was guarding Danny Green and they hadn't run any pick and roll with Danny Green all season. I think they wanted to kind of correct that by having everyone in their top seven used to being on um, both ends of the pick and roll, other than Abaka, obviously, who's only a screener. But um, yeah, so I think, you know, that's something Toronto's going to attack. That's something whoever Boston draws in the first round is going to attack too. Like if you're, if you're Indiana, you're trying to get Oladipo on him. If you're Philadelphia, you're trying to guess, I guess at this point, shake Milton on him. Uh, I don't know what Philadelphia is going to do if, if both their guys are out, but yeah, it's uh you know, that's, that's a certainly a concern for Boston and one, they can, you know, you can scheme around a little bit, but I don't think that they, like, I think they need Kemba too much offensively to, for him to like not be a, a prominent figure for them. Well, and I think that, when it comes to trying to scheme around someone defensively, like Brad Stevens is one of the best in the business, but Nick nurse might yeah. be the best in the business at figuring out a way to attack that matchup and attack specific matchups. So I don't know, man, like that's a, that's one that I still haven't wrapped my head around quite yet. Uh, I'm not saying that he's going to be like the downfall of the Boston Celtics or anything. Cause I certainly don't think that, but trying to figure out how Kemba Walker functions in a playoff series against uh, teams that have bigger guys is going to be really uh, fascinating to me. This is the kind of team that I think works well with Kemba because they have so many good perimeter defenders like Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum. You can take those guys and move them on to Fred Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry and make it work. But I'm just going to be interested to see how it goes, especially with Kemba not being 100%. I'm just not sure how that entire scenario plays out basically and i'm not saying that boston's gonna lose i think boston is probably just a very small step below milwaukee and toronto in terms of being able to um get to the finals but they're right there if you look up and boston's in the finals it would not stun me at all yeah i think either of those three teams getting through would you know and obviously this is before we even account for like injuries and stuff like that but i think I think the margins are, are pretty close. I, I think Toronto and Boston are closer than, you know, Toronto and Milwaukee or Boston or Milwaukee. Like, I think I think I would have it as a as a one-team top tier and then a 2-3 rather than a 1-2 and then a 3. But we're splitting hairs here. I think they're all, you know, I think they're, they all have a, a legitimate chance. And I think, you know, if you're looking at teams that could win the championship, it's those three and the two LA teams, right? And like, maybe you want to throw Houston in there um, if you like the variants play in the bubble or whatever. But... Uh, yeah, the, those teams are, you know, you, yeah, I do. I have some of the same concerns about Boston that you do though. So I, I, I definitely think they're the third on that East pecking order. Let's talk about the four through six real quick before we get out of here. Uh, Miami looks interesting to me on some level. I think everyone got really excited during that first half of the uh, Milwaukee game where they just came out and fucking wrecked shop for <laughs> Uh, 24 minutes and then Milwaukee just absolutely blitzed them in the second half and I think that at the end of the day Miami while they didn't have Jimmy Butler in those games right uh, I do think that Miami probably just doesn't have quite enough offensive firepower to get this done 
uh, against a team like a Milwaukee who they're going to have to play in the first round or the second round of the playoffs. Yeah, for sure. Like the fact that they rely on Kendrick Nunn for 15 points a game. And like, I know that people like the story of this undrafted guy or whatever, but Kendrick Nunn like is not super good. Like, and he's a guy we talk about guys are going to attack on, on other teams defensively. Like I think teams will try to hound him. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if his role in a playoff series shrinks over the course of a series. Um, and, and even like, you know, you the Raptors kind of showed that the Duncan Robinson bam action is manageable. You know, Duncan Robinson's obviously had a this phenomenal shooting year, um, and you kind of have to send two to him at times, and that opens up a lot for Jimmy Butler inside the arc. Um, so they're not without challenges, and Bam is obviously, you know, a most improved candidate and was so good defensively this year and so versatile on offense. Um, so there are a lot of challenges there, but yeah, they're another team where you know, when you talk about the the very top teams, like, do they have enough? Like, can you play none enough in a series? Is Jay Crowder really going to hit 40% of his threes like he has since getting there? Or is he going to settle back in as the low 30s guys he's been most of his career? And, and teams are going to dare, you know, teams are going to help aggressively off of Iguodala as well and see if he can make those shots. So, um, you know, and, and I don't know that the, the Myers-Leonard, Kelly Olynyk you know, dual big front courts have a ton of utility as the as the quality of competition ratchets up either. So yeah, so I have yes questions there. I think they're going to be a really annoying out, uh, but I'd be surprised if they get past the second if they get past Milwaukee. Yeah, you kind of hit the nail on the head with the point guard position at Miami because. The Toronto game, particularly against Miami, really kind of opened my eyes to how they're just going to really struggle with Kendrick Nunn on the court defensively. Sometimes now Kendrick Nunn in that game was just like a disaster on offense and he's not always going to be that disaster on offense, but between him and Goran Dragic, it's almost always going to be a very real negative defender on the court at the point guard position, regardless of how hard they try. So, and then you have Duncan Robinson who is six foot seven and a little bit bigger than you think he is. And, is typically in the right position defensively, but he's also not a plus defender. And, you know, the point guard position with one of Nanner Dragic and Duncan Robinson is essentially like a must play for them to have like proper spacing on the court. Having both of those guys who aren't necessarily high level defenders on the court at once, it kind of creates two way issues for Miami in a way that, you know, teams like Milwaukee, Boston, and Toronto just don't have, even though those guys are effective players in their roles. Yeah, that that's, that's a great point. And they have, this is where, you know, you look at Toronto, uh, Boston, Milwaukee, and what the rotation looks like in a short, in a tighter playoff series. And it's a lot of two way guys, you know, maybe with the exception of, of Bledsoe uh, on the Milwaukee end, but um, yeah, and that's the that's where Miami runs into some issues where Butler and Bam are these really good uh, two-way players. And if Crowder's hitting his shots, I guess you could put him in there. Um, but yeah, they have guys who, you know, they have an offense, a couple offensive first guys and a couple defensive first guys. And I don't know that, uh, you know, I don't know that that's going to be enough against Milwaukee the way that they dare bad offensive players to beat them and the way they can exploit bad defensive players. So, yeah, I think, again, I think they'll, they'll be annoying for Milwaukee, but I, I'd be pretty surprised if, you know, that's the team that takes the Bucks down. Uh, let's talk about Philadelphia before we close on Ugh. Indiana and TJ Warren. 
I, I've thrown in the towel on Indiana. I, I was I was a defender for even going into the bubble. I was a defender. Wait, you mean Philadelphia? Yes. I was gotcha. a defender going in on Philadelphia. I, I I thought they had a chance. I thought that they uh, could figure things out. The Ben Simmons injury is just a killer. And even before the Ben Simmons injury, this team looked like a disaster. Let's just call it what it is. I don't, I don't get it still. Like I know they made some missteps like salary cap wise and trade wise and building around Simmons and Embiid, but there's still so much talent. Like I saw someone tweet the other day that if you had a team in the East with Josh Richardson, Tobias Harris and Al Horford, like you would pick them to finish sixth in the East and the 76ers have Embiid and Simmons and they're still sixth in the East. Um, it's tough, man. And I don't know what, like, I don't know what, like, I think this is a case where, you know, there's something more than basketball going on, I guess, or, or things just aren't optimized properly. But like, I, I thought after almost beating Toronto last year and seeing what Toronto then did after that series, like I thought that that would kind of help Philadelphia figure things out because they were so close and, and you kind of see what it takes. And then they just went the complete opposite way. And coming into the bubble, you could have told me, uh, that Philadelphia was going to win the championship or be out in five games in the first round, and I would have believed you. And now with the Simmons injury and, you know, we don't know the severity of the Embiid injury, but but him rolling an ankle, uh, yeah, I don't – I I'm not all the way out, but I'm, like, barely hanging on, and it might only be because of Matisse. <laughs> yeah, at some point I'm going to have uh, a Sixers roundtable podcast where uh, I bring in the luminaries of six. That's, that's called group therapy, Sam. That's yeah. not a podcast. Uh, I'm ready for group therapy with the 76ers. Uh, I'm going to have a podcast at some point where I discuss all of the missteps that have been made here and how concerned I am for the future, because I am very concerned for the 76ers future. They, they, <laughs> they did the hard part in getting the stars and now they have failed uh, with, I don't want to say it's easy to fill out a championship roster because it's certainly not. And I discussed last week, the pitfalls that can come with that, but fuck man, it's bad. <laughs> it's, it's real bad. If you're a 76ers believer right now, um, let's move to the Indiana Pacers and close on a positive because you are the world's foremost TJ Warren fan. <laughs> And stand. Love TJ Warren. And have been for a long time. I know how much you love TJ. Yeah. Please. Which is a weird, it's a weird thing to have come around. It's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy for him. Like, like TJ Warren was a guy that when he was putting up empty stats on bad teams, it was like putting up 20 for these bad Phoenix teams. I was like, you know what? I actually, he was like almost like West Coast DeRozan at that point. I was like, he did so much inside the arc and like his post game was kind of nice and he had a lot in his bag. It was like not to oversimplify and be like, if this guy gets a three point shot, he could be something because obviously he had to really commit defensively this year. And that's been, you know, maybe one of the biggest changes in his profile is his ability to, to do that and earn the trust of, of Nate McMillan. Um, and he, you know, he's still not there as a, as a playmaker for a guy with the ball in his hands as much, but I'm just like, like TJ Warren is, such a bucket getter and i thought that the bubble environment would benefit kind of at least early on these guys who could just step in and get a bucket now did i think he'd average 35 points over the first five games on monstrous shooting percentages yes i did 
Um, I had him in every DFS lineup. I bet on the Pacers heavily. Uh, no, I didn't think that at all. Uh, it's been awesome to see and like really adds a, a cool dimension to the Pacers where um, Sabonis obviously going down with the um, plantar fasciitis, it, it adds such a cool extra wrinkle for them where they've had such a tough year with the Depot stuff and even with Malcolm Brogdon a bit and now Sabonis being out to have fully actualized TJ Warren um, to make sure that they're still an interesting playoff series has been a ton of fun. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, the TJ leap has been incredible. Uh, I saw Ryan McDonough took a victory lap on Twitter against the Phoenix, the current Phoenix administration, which was amazing. Um, Man, TJ Warren being as good as he is and the Pacers getting him for the price of them acquiring the 32nd overall pick in the 2019 NBA. Oh, man. Um, what a what a decision that was. And here I thought Jordan Bell was going to be the best cash considerations joke for years. No. Uh, that one hasn't worked out quite as well, but it's nice that we have someone to, to do. It's like like last year I got so much run out of the fact that the Spurs included $5 million in the Kawhi Leonard trade. I can only imagine what Pacers fans are getting out of this TJ Warren run. That's amazing. Uh, the TJ Warren has clearly gotten better. Like, let's be honest. Like he has become this step back threat in a way that he wasn't really in Phoenix. Like he can actually create coming around ball screens in a way, in a way where he was more of like an advantage guy offensively who had this incredible floater game and obviously was a mid range gunner, right? Like everyone loves the floater game with TJ Warren, right? Like that's, that's always what he was at NC state and always what he was coming up. But man, that three point shot last year, it was there. Like you watch the mechanics, you watch the uh, percentages, you watch everything. Like it looked like he had become a three point shooter in a very substantial way. And to give that guy away, I get that he had the injury concerns and Phoenix was kind of dumb with him and that Phoenix needed to open up cap space. Like, let's be honest, man. Like, I get that there were contextual factors and I get the Phoenix is five and zero in the bubble right now too. Right. Like there, there is every reason for, uh, for excitement about the Phoenix sun's direction. And maybe that doesn't happen if TJ Warren is still there, but God, you got to think that they wish that one, they could get that one back. Uh, yeah. Was... And, and like, that was one I remember on draft, like when it happened, a lot of us were like, what? Like, like I thought the pick was going the other direction or something. Um, and I get it. You got to, you know, these things happen. Like, it's not like the Raptors haven't attached picks to unload players before, but TJ Warren, like, like to unload a, a 25 year old who can get you 15 points a game, like semi efficiently and like be, you know, I, I don't know what he, where he's going to settle in overall, but like he could be your number two kind of scorer um, to give, to pay, to give that away is just, it's a lot. It's uh, I don't think uh, you know Phoenix is Phoenix is obviously looking really good too, and they're they're having a nice bubble time here, and I think I think the future's starting to finally look better for them um, with guys like like Booker and Bridges and those guys taking steps forward. But yeah, that's a uh, it's a tough one. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a wild wild deal. Like, uh, how how is a team not willing just to give up? Like future second rounder for TJ Warren is my question to give away uh, TJ Warren with a high value draft pick. is just bananas to me. Uh, this Pacers team is going to be miserable to play in the playoffs. Uh, 
they're... yeah they're so tough and and you know they not that like not to reduce things to effort level or whatever but like McMillan has these guys like well prepared and they're always like they don't take games off really and their defense is like like beyond it just ranking sixth in the league like they're very tough they you've got to grind these games out and, and like that Cleveland series is not far from my memory and I know there's been a bunch of turnover since but I think that's the kind of series that you're in for even if Sabonis isn't back. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, like you said, they really just make people grind for perimeter jumpers, right? And they have a very real defensive anchor inside in Miles Turner, who, while you can get second chance opportunities when he's on the court, uh, he is going to shut down the paint in a pretty substantial way in terms of that initial uh, line of protection at the basket. So, man, assuming that Victor Oladipo is back and he looked really good against the Lakers. He looked really, really good against the Lakers. I, yeah, I would really love for, like, as, even assuming Sabonis isn't out, like, I feel like the Pacers deserve a little bit of injury luck. And if that means Oladipo looks like he looked on um, Saturday, I feel like they're due for, for somebody, like, beyond the TJ Warren breakup. Like, I feel like they're due for Oladipo to just be back and comfortable. Uh, they've, had a, they've had a tough run. I, this is going to get me a lot of hate in the uh, Indiana part of the world. Uh, I kind of think that Sabonis is a little overrated. Just a little bit. Not a lot. I think he's good. I think he's an exceptional top 10 offensive center in the NBA. I don't even think he is a disaster defensively either. Like he is probably just a slightly below average center defensively. But... Playing him with Miles Turner, and then they have Goja Bitadze uh, as their backup center, who I think is, frankly, probably ready to take on that role, uh, given what their scheme is. I'm not saying that they're like 100% better off playing like small with Brogdon, Oladipo, Warren, and then like Aaron Holiday at the point, or even playing like Justin Holiday in lineups with uh, Depot, Warren, and Brogdon. I don't know that there's much of a difference there between what Sabonis brings and what uh, what that lineup brings to the table for them. I'm not willing to go that far with you, but I definitely think like if you're trying to optimize Indiana moving forward, like you certainly look to shop one of the bigs, right? Like right. like Turner or Sabonis, whichever. I, I mean, it might come down to just like who can you get more value for. Um, but yeah, I think that that's the you know getting another another wing or, uh, you know, a different type of, uh, a different type of, you know, power forward there would be, uh, that's probably the play longer term is, is to flip one of those guys. Yeah. And I, I don't mean to say that Demonis isn't absolutely incredible. Like there are very few centers I enjoy watching more in Indiana than Demonis Sabonis, right? Like I'm trying to choose my words carefully. Cause like yeah. people take this. No, I, I get it though. You, you, you know, yeah, I mean? like you, you like him and he's a good player, but if you're trying to optimize the Pacers for the future, like maybe that's the, the piece that you leverage to, you know, improve somewhere else that, that doesn't, you know, like, like you said, if you think Goja's ready, then, you know, that that's, those are the hard decisions teams have to make sometimes. Right. And like, you're not, you're not crapping on him. No, he's incredible. He's one of the best offensive centers in the league. I, I just wonder, does this team look markedly different uh, when he's on the court versus when he's off the court? 
Uh, I'm not 100% convinced there uh, on that, I guess. And part of it is that his replacement player is super high in Miles Turner, right? Like he's a really, really valuable center and they can play small and do a lot of different stuff that gives them more space offensively. And uh, I'm just, you know, a little bit, uh, I'm wondering. It's, it's, a, it's a thought that's kind of noodling around in my brain. Uh, maybe is the best way to put it. Well, noodle away. That's, yeah, that's, uh, that's, I mean, I guess it's not the time yet for that, but we're only, I guess, depending on if the Pacers pull an upset off or we're one or two rounds away from, from having those kind of conversations much deeper about them. So right. noodle away. Right. And, you know, uh, they're going to be, that, I mean, that series against Miami, if they have all of Oladipo, Brogdon, Warren, and Turner healthy, that's a toss-up to me. Like, that's a real genuine toss-up to me, even though I know that Miami has been uh, the better team throughout the course of the season. Uh, there's a reason that these two teams are tied in terms of record. That 4-5 matchup, assuming that Indiana takes care of business the rest of the way and does get into that 4-5 matchup, I, I don't think it's as simple as Miami just being the favorite in that series. I legit think that's a toss-up. Yeah. Now, selfishly, what I what I have been hoping for, and I, I don't think it's going to happen, um, because like Philadelphia, especially if Embiid's going to miss a couple more games, like they're just, I don't think they're going to win enough of these last couple games. But um, one of the better teams sliding into the Boston matchup, again, speaking strictly of self interest, of wanting, you know, my my work life is a lot better if the Raptors make it to the Eastern Conference Finals or further. Um, one of the better teams sliding into the sixth spot and then, you know, giving Boston a really tough series is, uh, if you're a Raptor fan, I think that's what you're rooting for at this point. Whereas we thought all season that, you know, Philly being in that three, six spot was, was the, the, the better play. Um, but yeah, if they're, if they're looking like this, I don't know. Blake, tell the people what you've got coming up. Tell the people where they can find your work. Yeah, so you can find all my stuff at The Athletic, obviously. Um, you know, as uh, we know, the Raptors playoff opponent early. It's Brooklyn, which is nice. So I'll have a ton of deep dive series preview stuff uh, coming up at the end of the week. And then, um, you know, I've been doing this thing as the Raptors wrap up their season series which, with each of the top six uh, teams in the East. I do kind of a breakdown of the season series and, um, you know, what we learned from it and kind of teeing up what that playoff series would look like hypothetically. So, um, I've done one for the Heat and the Pacers and the Celtics now, and the Raptors play the 76ers and the Bucks in the next couple of days, so I'll have those up as well. Um, even acknowledging that these aren't going to be perfectly representative games because things like Giannis sitting and stuff like that, um, you know, still some takeaways from from the season series. And then yeah, I'll have a deep uh, a deep Nets Raptors dive uh, later in the week since that's locked up nice and early. I think I think this is the first time I can ever remember that the Raptors playoff opponent wasn't decided like the last minute so we had to all flip uh preview content around really really quickly blake does an incredible job covering the toronto raptors over at the athletic which is who presents this podcast so go subscribe to the athletic please uh keep us all employed over there that'd be great uh <laughs> I'll have something coming up later this week that I don't really want to give away yet. Uh, it's a deep dive into Ooh. something that is uh, exciting, given that the 2020 draft is not particularly great, we'll say. Uh, <laughs> and then I'm going to have coaches poll series on Kyra Lewis and Isaac Okoro, probably for this week, maybe early next week as well. So uh, keep it locked over at The Athletic. 
And until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye. Thank you.